0: What you're about to hear is part four of a four-part series on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. If you happen to miss the earlier episodes, you might want to catch them so you could put this final edition into some sort of context. If you don't care much about context, well, then without further ado, and finally, Ghosts of the Ostfront, part four. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. It's Hardcore History. Sixty-plus years after the Second World War has ended, we know quite a bit more about what was going on than the people who were actually living through the experience. Now, with all of the memoirs that have come out, all of the analysis, the information, the data that's available from all the participants, you can see that the catastrophic German defeat At the Battle of Stalingrad in late 1942, early 1943, was probably the turning point in the war. Turning points themselves are a little cliche to simply say that. If you could, you know, put your finger on the moment the the war turned from one sort of momentum to another. But probably not too far of a stretch to call Stalingrad the turning point. The point at which the Germans could no longer realistically see themselves winning the war. Now, they didn't have to assume that they were going to lose it. Some sort of stalemate, negotiated peace, armistice could leave them in control of tons of Europe. No one knew how that was going to turn out. But the chances of the Germans actually conquering the Soviet Union, going and turning around and beating the British and dealing with the Americans, all of that stuff became much more the stuff of fantasy after Stalingrad had ended. Now, the people at the time probably didn't realize how big of a deal the loss at Stalingrad was. Turning points in wars are something that's usually determined after the war. There are German generals who probably realized it was the turning point. There are memoirs by German veterans on the ground, the average soldiers who certainly saw it as a turning point. But after Stalingrad ended, the German high command began doing exactly what they would have expected to do you know, the year before they started to come up with the plan for 1943. 1941, the plan was to drive to Moscow and take it. 1942, the plan was to drive to the oil fields of the Caucasus and take it. Both of those offenses had been launched in the summer, you know, the late spring, early summer. So, once again, the campaigning season would start after the mud dried, late spring, early summer, and the German high command was planning for an offensive. Now, I want to reemphasize that just because the Germans were planning, or talking about planning a new offensive, that doesn't mean that the violence had ever died down along the Eastern Front. The fighting along the 2,000-mile you know, stretch of territory from Finland to the Black Sea was constant. There was fighting over local landmarks you know, in a no-man's land between German trenches and Soviet trenches. There were localized and smaller offensives and counterstrokes. The fighting was going on all the time. These major war-winning or war-losing offensives were a simple spike in the normal level of violence going on. Leningrad in the north was still encircled, as it had been by the Germans since 1941, the people there still starving to death and suffering. Eastern Europe was still in German hands, occupied by the Nazis, suffering under their cruel regime and harsh measures. These offensives that we're talking about here were the grand designs for victory. In 1941, it had been Barbarossa, the drive to Moscow. In 1942, it had been the Operation Blue drive to the Caucasus. In 1943, it was going to be something called Operation Citadel. Operation Citadel was a plan... ...that the German generals came up with. Adolf Hitler was to some degree... ...out of the loop. He had pulled himself back... ...from his enthusiastic... ...and aggressive ideas... ...on how to win this war... ...because his ideas... ...had led to catastrophe... ...up to this point. He had put a lot of emphasis... ...into the new designs... ...new tank designs... ...new equipment... ...new aircraft that were coming off the assembly lines... But he didn't have any plan for how to use this new equipment in a way that would bring him victory. As author Alan Clark writes, quote, he seemed to have no ideas, end quote. So he left it up to his generals. Well, the German generals were split on this idea. Once Hitler said, it's up to you guys, they had a bunch of different opinions. Heinz Guderian, the gifted panzer leader, said, don't do anything. Go on the defensive in 1943. Let the Russians crash against a defensive wall of German troops. Let us rebuild our forces, get all the new tanks together, get good numbers, good trained troops, and in 1944, launch a war-changing offensive. Many of the other German generals disagreed. They thought for reasons of morale and the question of momentum. You had to just do something. You couldn't just sit there. German offensive strategy was always geared toward launching attacks as opposed to, you know, taking them. Von Manstein had some different ideas about the way this stroke or counterstroke should be handled. But most of the German generals settled upon a bulge in the eastern front line, a salient, a place where the Soviets had pushed ahead of the rest of the forces, so it created a sort of a bag jutting out toward the German side of the line. This is a classic place for an offense to happen, because it's really easy to get military units on both sides of the bulge right at the neck of it and pinch it shut, and then trapping any of the enemy's units that might happen to be in that bag. So the German generals began looking at this salient around a city named Kursk. This was going to be a huge offensive. It was going to take the mass of what Germany had available for its cutting edge, force it into one force and launch it all at once. More tanks than they had ever used. More powerful equipment than they'd ever employed. They were going to take the army of 1943 and launch it into action in an all-out, you know, attempt to gain the initiative back in the war and inflict a crushing defeat on the Soviet Union. Now, Hitler was nervous about this. The great gambler who had gotten Germany this far had kind of lost his nerve a bit because he was almost out of chips. He didn't have armies that he could afford to lose anymore on gambles. He's like a man at the wagering table that doesn't have a lot of chips left, but he needs a big score, but he's afraid to push that whole pile in because if he loses that, he's left with nothing. He's a fish, you know, left out to dry. Hitler told Guderian that the thought of this operation to pinch off the salient to curse, what was being called Operation Citadel, he said to Guderian, quote, it makes my stomach turn over, end quote. He was nervous about this whole thing. He had reason to be. You see, the idea of pinching off salients is such a basic part of offensive, you know, war strategy that everyone knows that that's the most likely place an offensive is going to come from. In 1941, the Soviets picked incorrectly where the Germans would attack. Thought they'd attack down in the south by Kiev, put their forces down there to receive the attack. The Germans go into the center of the country, launch right for the capital of Moscow. In 1942, the Soviets think, okay, probably going toward Moscow, going to finish the job they started in 1941. So they put all their crack units up by Moscow. The Germans attack in the south down by Kiev. In 1943, the Soviet leadership looks at the salient at Kursk and says, well, that would be the obvious place to attack which is exactly what the Germans were thinking, which is probably why they should have gone with Guderian's suggestion or von Manstein's suggestion and done something else altogether. Don't attack where they know you're going to attack. The Germans even found out that the Soviets knew that they were coming at a certain point in the planning process and went forward with it anyway. Bought into Hitler's idea that, so what if they know we're coming? We have these great new tanks, all this great new equipment. We're the Germans. We do the Blitzkrieg. We'll knock them dead. We've never failed to do that in the past. Certainly never failed to have the Blitzkrieg work. People like Guderian weren't buying it. The troops on the ground weren't buying it either. In early May, Hitler decides to postpone this huge, you know, change in fortune battle for the German army. The Tiger tanks and the new Panther tanks that he wants so badly aren't arriving as quickly as he'd expected, so he's going to delay the offensive a couple more months. Many German generals get real nervous about this because they know the soviets are already fortifying the area they see the offensive coming this will just give them more time to turn it into a a fortress on the ground the newly revised date for the start of what's being called the kursk offensive is to be july 4th as the chief of staff of the 48th panzer division observed quote independence day for america the beginning of the end for germany end quote Hitler delivers a pre-battle message on July 1st, 1943, telling the German soldiers that this battle is the one that will teach, you know, other peoples what happens when you stand against German armed might. It was one of those kind of things. And the soldiers on the ground could see that the might of Germany was, was assembled. It was one of the largest forces Germany ever put in the field, about to be part of the largest armored conflict of all time. Kursk is one of those battles war gamers still obsess about because there was so much stuff there. The Germans have deployed 37 divisions, more than 900,000 men, including more than 2,500 tanks and assault guns, more than 10,000 guns. They've brought 1,800 aircraft to the party as well. Now, against this, just to prove they're not slouching at all, the Red Army has 1,300,000 troops, all of them in deeply fortified positions, rank upon rank upon rank, protected by 8,000 landmines, Per square mile, more than 3,000 tanks, 20,000 guns, 2,500 aircraft, and the Red Army had dug more than 3,000 miles of trenches to cover the fighting zone. Now, the first thing you'll notice if you look at this battle is that the Germans, the attackers, are outnumbered by the Red Army. This is a major violation of all the standard rules of war. The attacker is supposed to have at least a 3-to-1 superiority over the defender because the defense has more innate power than the offense. You do better if you're even better than 3-to-1. 5 to ones even, you know, more optimal. The Germans are outnumbered by the Red Army. Once again, the German high command looking at these wonderful new tanks and thinking these tanks will make up for the fact that we're violating the basic rules, you know, the 3-to-1 rule. The Wehrmacht's professional generals knew better and warned Hitler, but the true believers bought into the idea that You know, when you added up everything the Germans brought to the table, once again they were going to show their superiority over the Red Army. Now, the Soviets are so aware of when this battle is going to kick off that a half hour before it does, the Soviets launch a pre-battle bombardment against the German staging areas, where the tanks are all lining up, where the infantry are are getting ready on the road to push forward before the first light. Right before they do that, the Soviet artillery begins to fall. Marshal Zhukov, the head of the Red Army, who was there, called the sound of this preemptive artillery barrage, quote, a symphony from hell, unquote. So it's an inauspicious beginning right there. Shows all the Germans whose morale might have been a little shaky, or even those whose morale was rock solid, that we know you're coming, we're ready for you, taste this, there's more where this came from. One side got taught a lesson at Kursk, but it was the German side. The Germans who had been teaching modern warfare throughout this whole war finally saw their blitzkrieg run up against a counter-tactic. To counter this lightning war idea of punching through the enemy lines and sending your armor into the back to disrupt the fragile communications and support areas, you run into the Russians' defense in depth. It's almost like a counter move in chess you take these soldiers and you pile them rank upon rank upon rank upon rank and you put these gun positions around them, and you put the mines out and the anti-tank guns and the aircraft and basically you suck up everything the germans can deliver and don't give them an area to punch into the farther in they punch the more stuff they run into the battle of kursk itself was a number of smaller battles that took place over about a nine ten day period More tanks and armored equipment met head-to-head in this battle than at any other time in history. And most veterans of the fighting there seem to remember it being hot, and it may have been warm, but by the actual standards of the Soviet Union at that time of year, it was kind of cool at the time the battle was fought. What these people were probably remembering is the heat generated by the battle. As one Soviet female soldier recalled, quote, the sky thunders, the earth thunders, and you think your heart will explode and that the skin on your back is about to burst. I hadn't thought that the earth could crack. Everything cracked. Everything roared. The whole world seemed to be swaying, End quote. German tank driver Helmut Steiner's commander told him what had happened at Kursk a month before Steiner missed the battle. His commander said, quote, We started a massive offensive against the Soviets in the Kursk area about a month ago. It was unbelievable. Tanks were fighting tanks in their hundreds. At the same time, Ivan was fully prepared for us. He was dug in at such depth that when we overran one anti-tank position at great cost to our panzers, another would be waiting for us, and another, and another. We were knocking out the Ruskies hand over fist, but he was bashing hell out of us too. Our losses were appalling. Their defense system was over a hundred miles wide across the neck of the salient. There were hundreds of groups of 576 76-millimeter anti-tank guns in mutually supporting batteries, backed up by infantry with mortars. Then their engineers had laid thousands of mines to each mile. They had been placed in such a way that to avoid them, we were forced to move toward their guns. After a week or so, we had no choice but to pull back. Otherwise, we would have been wiped out. Meanwhile, Ivan remained in his thousands. That's the way it always is. At best, all we do is dent the opposition. We always finish up worse than when we started. A lot less tanks and a lot less territory. Ever since Stalingrad, the story has been the same. End quote. Well, Helmut Steiner's tank commander does a pretty good job of explaining how it went. On the 9th of July, five days after the battle starts, the Russians say that the German attack has been held and claim that 2,000 tanks were destroyed in the first four days. That gives you an idea of the ferocity of this conflict. Go try to find some movies documenting this event. There are precious few. It didn't look like there was a lot of time to sit down and shoot any film on this thing. Or maybe if you had been able to, all you would have seen is smoke. It's that kind of battle. It almost adds to the allure because you wish you could see it. And there was really too much going on at the time to record any of it for posterity. We may not be able to see what that battle was like now, but the people at the time could smell what it was like then. Some participants of the battle say that you could smell the unburied bodies, the thousands of them, bloating in the sun miles away from the fighting area. It was that kind of battle. As a German veteran said, quote, "...war in the West was proper sport, while war in the East was unmitigated horror." End quote. On the 13th of July, despite the maximum efforts by the German forces to break through in the areas where they were supposed to break through, They can't, and Hitler calls the offensive off. The battle is a huge win for the Red Army. They've stopped this big German gamble where they threw in all of their best forces once again at a time where they had no reserves. The Germans would never again seize the main initiative on the Eastern Front. When Operation Citadel fails, many German generals, and some in the German leadership even, see that the war is lost. A couple of authors even claim that Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, is one of those people who determined at this time that the chances of winning the war had ended with their hopes in the Kursk salient. And if Kursk wasn't enough to make the Germans feel bad about their situation, while Kursk is going on, Sicily is invaded by the Western Allies. It's a little like when Stalingrad happens, the Battle of El Alamein occurs in North Africa, another Allied win. These one-two punches seem to come with regularity. Every time the Germans take a big one, they take another one to go with it. After Kursk, the Germans begin a process of a long, long retreat, a fighting retreat that sometimes is intentional and other times they're trying to hold the line. They just get pushed back. That happens all the way back towards Berlin for the rest of the war. During this long-term maneuver, they adopt a scorched earth policy in the areas where they are vacating, a policy that is frightful to the extreme. It results in many of the worst atrocities committed in the war. After Kursk, the German chief of staff writes his wife and he tells her, quote, All hell is loose on the Eastern Front. End quote. Well, to anyone who's been listening to this series of shows up till now, you're wondering how bad things must be now if this general only thinks hell's being unleashed now. What do you call what's happened up till now? Well, when you read them, the stories speak for themselves. The tales of atrocities that were part of this scorched earth policy that we're talking about here is something that reminds you of the stuff of legend. You know, tales of Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun rampaging through civilized areas. Stories of civilians crowded into buildings which are then set on fire. Women and children literally lined up against the wall and machine-gunned. Terrible things. A war of true hatred on all sides with no mercy shown to anyone. And yet... Even amidst all this hatred and this lack of mercy and caring and the dehumanization of both sides, the human element still comes into play from time to time. Writer Boris Gorbachevsky tells a wonderful story about a man in his unit with a haunting, moving, wonderful singing voice. He would keep the unit entertained, and Gorbachevsky says, sing loudly and brilliantly in the trenches. The Russians took special care of this man, saw to it that his throat was kept warm, and that he always had a cup of hot tea for him to drink, keep his voice fresh. They would all write home and tell their family how lucky they felt to have such a talent, you know, with them in the unit. One night, that singer was ill and he couldn't perform. And the Russians received a worried message on the radio from the Germans facing them across no man's land. They said, quote, What have you done with your singer? End quote. Even the Germans would stop shooting when this guy performed. One night, the Germans even crept into the no-man's land between the two trenches, Gorbachevsky says, braving the danger of being killed, simply to throw a new harmonica into the trenches of the Russians so that the singer would have music to accompany him. You know, amid the horror, still a little basic humanity could occasionally rise to the surface. And that sort of thing makes you wonder whether those people, those Germans on the one side of the battle line that wanted to hear the Russian singer as much as the... Russian singers on the other side of the battle line wanted to hear him. Would they even be fighting if it weren't for these governments of theirs? You know, especially the German government that launched the war. German soldier Gunter Koscherak wrote after the war, quote, "...when will people realize that it is possible for any of us to be manipulated by domineering and power-crazed individuals who know how to motivate the masses in order to misuse them for their own ends?" While they keep well out of the way in safety, they have no hesitation in brutally sacrificing their people in the name of patriotism. Will mankind ever stand together against them? Or are those who died in the fighting dead forever? And will the reasons they gave their lives be forgotten? How capable do you think your neighbor or your countrymen are of committing evil acts if those acts were condoned or encouraged by the government? How about this? What if the government punished you if you didn't commit those evil acts? Makes you start to look at your neighbors, your countrymen, maybe even yourself in a new light. And to say that the political system in Germany and in the Soviet Union wasn't evil, I think is to ignore one of the basic qualities that that government looked for when it picked people to serve in it. You know, why was Korsharak and all of his comrades, and why were the Russians on the other side of the trenches from him fighting? Well, how about the quality of the leadership that sent them to fight? I've always wondered about, say, look at the Nazis, for example. To me, they look like the mafia. A lot of those guys in the Nazi hierarchy, in positions of running a major world power, wouldn't have had a job in a democracy. They have a qualification, a character trait, that is highly valuable in the system they operate in. But it's an actual disadvantage in most countries. They're evil, and evil is something that helps you get a promotion in some of these systems. Both in Hitler's and Stalin's regimes, the ability to be bloodthirsty and pitiless are check marks, the good stuff on the resume. The Germans actually picked their mayors for their occupied territories, the Gauleiters. One of the main things they looked for is ruthlessness. You push good humanitarian people who want to do the best for their country out of positions of power because the evil people are scoring higher on the evil test. Eventually you end up with a government full of these evil people and then you wonder why it does evil things. At least, Gunther Korshorek did. How well would Heinrich Himmler or Lavrenti Beria do in a democracy? Well, they were in the upper stratus of power in their respective governments in the Second World War. Now, on July 25th, Benito Mussolini is deposed in a coup in Italy. Between August and December 1943, there are five attempts on Hitler's life. So now the tide is really turning. The defeats that the Germans and the Axis have suffered look bad enough, so it looks like the war is lost to some people, and they're willing to risk their own lives, and in the case of going after Adolf Hitler, the lives of their families, to take a shot at the leader. Once again, you wonder what the more rational, more common-sense leadership, by comparison, of the Germany of 1914-1918 would have thought of all this. Now, on the Eastern Front, for the rest of the war, the fighting follows a particular pattern. The pattern is that the Soviets build up for offensives, get their supplies all together, build up the numbers of their troops. They launch the offensive, usually encircling lots of Germans and doing real well, and then they go until they run out of steam or the German defense stiffens, or they have to slow down because they don't have any supplies, and then they start at that spot to rebuild again. Sort of a series of jumps all the way back to Berlin. Each of these jumps costs the German army a ton of lives. There are still more than 2 million men fighting on the Eastern Front on the German side, which sounds like a lot until you realize that German casualties for the year 1943 alone on the Eastern Front alone topped the 900,000 man mark some good news for the Russians happens on January 27th 1944 the people of the city of Leningrad finally have their agony come to an end the people who have been under siege and for the most part surrounded by the German army since the main attack in 1941 finally have their country liberated Now, for a while, sometimes, when the lake behind the city of Leningrad had frozen up, they could get some supplies into the city. But by and large, think of any major city you want to think of. Now, imagine it cut off from the outside world for more than two years. No food, no supplies, nothing. What would that city look like after two and a half years? Well, Leningrad looked like a city of starving people. In the two-plus years of the siege, almost a million people in the city had died from starvation and cannibalism was widely reported. Historian Max Hastings had an interesting line about this. He said, referring to what would have happened in Great Britain had they ever been taken over by the Nazis, he said, quote, even if Britain had been invaded, the inhabitants of its cities would have chosen surrender rather than eat each other, end quote. That's pretty profound when you think about it. Winston Churchill was coming up with a slogan he admits was you can always take one with you, Meaning, you know, if you're going to die when the Germans invade, take one with you and we'll kill a lot of Germans. But not a lot of people thought that that's how London was going to maybe be defended. Hastings is right. That is what happened in Leningrad. They ate each other rather than surrender. Now, they really didn't have much of an option. Stalin was basically decreeing that was what was going to happen. Nevertheless, those are the people that lived it. And you just have to shake your head and go, amazing. Imagine the psychic damage living through something like that gives you. In February 1944, Hitler is lecturing all his Eastern Front commanders on National Socialism, believing that these military men just needed to get more into the political spirit to have the right sort of temperament to take on the Russians the way Hitler thinks they need to be taken on. While all this is going on, the Soviets managed to cut off some 60,000 German soldiers in a place known as the Korsun Pocket. 100 miles southeast of the city of Kiev in what's now Ukraine. We wouldn't know a ton about what went on there except there was a witness at the scene who wrote about it. It's a tale that must have been repeated time and time again on the great expanses of the eastern front and few people either thought it worth writing about or could even find the words to explain what happened. Here's a first-hand account of the Korsum pocket. A major Kampov of the Red Army wrote the description of the Germans breaking out of the encirclement by the Soviets. He said that the Germans formed up into a couple of groups. Quote, So that morning they formed themselves into two marching columns of about 14,000 each, and they marched in this way to Lizianka, where the two ravines met. Lizianka was beyond our front line, inside the corridor. The German divisions on the other side were trying to batter their way eastward, but now the corridor was so wide that they hadn't much chance. They were a strange sight, these two German columns that tried to break out of the encirclement. Each of them was like an enormous mob... The spearhead and the flanks were formed by the SS men of the Wallonia Brigade and the Viking Division in their pearl grey uniforms. They were in a relatively good state of physique. Then inside the triangle marched the rabble of the ordinary German infantry, very much more down at the heel. Right in the middle of this, a small select nucleus was formed by the officers. They also looked relatively well-fed, so they moved westward along two parallel ravines. They had started out soon after 4 a.m. while it was still completely dark. We knew the direction from which they were coming. We had prepared five lines, two lines of infantry, then a line of artillery, and then two more lines where the tanks and the cavalry lay in wait. We let them pass through the first three lines without firing a shot. The Germans, believing that they had dodged us and had now broken through our defenses, burst into frantic jubilant screaming, firing their pistols and Tommy guns into the air as they marched on. They had now emerged from the ravines and reached open country. Then it happened. It was about six o'clock in the morning. Our tanks and our cavalry suddenly appeared and rushed straight into the thick of the two columns. What happened then is hard to describe. The Germans ran in all directions, and for the next four hours, our tanks raced up and down the plain, crushing them by the hundred. Our cavalry, competing with the tanks, chased them through the ravines where it was hard for tanks to pursue them. Most of the time, the tanks were not using their guns, lest they hit our own cavalry. Hundreds and hundreds of cavalry were hacking at them with their sabers and massacring the Fritzes as no one had ever been massacred by cavalry before. There was no time to take prisoners. It was a kind of carnage that nothing could stop until it was all over. In a small area, over 20,000 Germans were killed. I had been at Stalingrad, but never had I seen such concentrated slaughter as in the ravines and fields of that small bit of country. By 9 a.m. it was all over. End quote. You can... Imagine that scene taking place during the Napoleonic Wars too. Time and time again as Napoleon retreated from the vast expanses of Russia with the Russians on his heels the whole way. Historian Richard Overy said that quote, "Stalin was said to be delighted by the massacre," end quote, at the Korsun Pocket. Delighted. Many German soldiers now knew the fate they faced. Soldier Gizea wrote that he and his cohorts, quote, all knew we were dead men with no hope of getting through this experience alive, end quote. He said that when fighting, they often did so, quote, in a rage that was akin to taking revenge in advance for our own deaths, end quote. Gunter Korsereck said that no one was fighting for the Nazi New World Order or any other such idea by this point, quote, After you've spent some time at the front like I have, you no longer fight for fuhrer, folk, and fatherland. These ideals have long gone, and no one talks about national socialism or similar political matters. From all our conversations, it's quite obvious that the primary reason we fight is to stay alive and help our frontline comrades do the same. End quote. That job was made harder for Gunther Korscherak and his comrades on June 6, 1944, when the Allies finally opened up their second front that Joseph Stalin's been hammering them for for years now, with the D-Day landings at Normandy. Now, really, it was the third front when you realize that the Allies are fighting in Italy at this point, too. So there's fighting in the south in Italy, there's fighting now in the west in Normandy, and, of course, the Soviets never stopped fighting. Right after the D-Day landings, supposedly in support for the D-Day landings people disagree about this, the Soviets launch one of their biggest operations of the war. They're the ones who launched the big spring-summer offensive in 1944, and they name it after one of their generals who fought Napoleon. It's called Operation Bagration, and it's launched on June 22, 1944. Coincidentally, but probably not really, the third anniversary of the original 1941 Barbarossa attack against the Soviet Union. In the first 12 days of bagration the Soviet Union looks like they're trying to match the German efforts in 1941 army group center on the German side all by itself loses 25 divisions and well over 300,000 men in the ensuing weeks it'll lose more than 100,000 more during the entire two months surrounding operation bagration the Germans lose a staggering 550,000 men killed or captured and the Soviets lose 200,000 so it's still a costly victory The Soviets can afford it, though. By late fall 1944, they have about 6.5 million men on the Eastern Front, facing about 2.2 million Germans, and that includes their Axis allies as well. You can feel the momentum start to favor the Soviets in a big way. I mean, after all, they launched Bagration at the same time that they were fighting on other parts of the front, with 124 divisions. 1,200,000 A 1,200,000 men, more than 5,000 tanks, 30,000 guns, 6,000 aircraft. The Soviets seemed to do everything on a titanic scale. The Germans could field a measly 63 divisions, 900 tanks, 10,000 guns. You could see how all the efforts to compete on all the fronts were hurting the Germans, in addition to all the losses they'd suffered so far. One history website put it like this, quote, Geographically, it dwarfed the campaign for Normandy. In four weeks, it inflicted greater losses on the German army than the Wehrmacht had suffered in the five months at Stalingrad. With more than 2.3 million men, six times the artillery, twice the number of tanks that launched the Battle of the Bulge, it was the largest Allied operation of World War II. It demolished three Axis armies, tore open the Eastern Front. Operation Bagration, the Red Army's spring 1944 Blitzkrieg, was designed to support the Allied operations in France, liberate Russian territory, and break the back of the Wehrmacht once and for all end quote. It pretty much did all of that. It showed how well the Soviets had learned the blitzkrieg tactics from the Germans and they handled it so well that the Germans were shocked by the Red Army's performance. They shouldn't have been. They knew how well the Soviet leaders were commanding these troops. This is another one of the little aspects of the war on the Eastern Front as far as we Western allies are concerned. We don't give the Soviet Generals and field marshals their due. Historian Max Hastings says straight up that Marshal Zhukov of the Soviet Union was the best Allied general of the war, bar none. This will come as a shock to those of us who were raised under the idea that Patton or Montgomery or Eisenhower or MacArthur was the best truthfully any of those generals would probably fall somewhere in the middle of the upper pack of the Soviet Union who could also boast leaders like Rokossovsky and Konev and Chuikov and a whole handful of other really really top-line leaders and a lot of competent people underneath that they were used to commanding huge armies and fighting massive battles of the kind that they very very rarely if ever saw on the western front Heinz Guderian of the German High Command says that the Soviets were, quote, brilliantly led, end quote. Max Hastings also stresses the courage of the Red Army soldiers, saying that, quote, the Red Army often displayed courage and determination far above anything that could have been asked of American or British troops, end quote. And he was right about that. The Americans and the British fought well, but both of them were very concerned, as you might expect, with casualties. This was something that didn't trouble the Russians as much. Military historians who are unbiased will point out often that the Germans and the Soviets fielded the two most effective and dangerous ground forces in the Second World War, and it's a long way to the number three power. And the Red Army of 1944 is a completely different animal than the one of 1941-1942, just as the German Army is a completely different animal from then as well. The Germans have gotten worse. The Soviets have turned themselves into a gargantuan powerhouse. Equipment, tactics, leadership, they had become one of the great land armies of the 20th century. The amount of equipment that they produced just in the final year of the war shows the transformation. They produced 30,000 tanks, 40,000 planes in the last year of the war. Gone, long gone were the days of having to share a single rifle between two or three Soviet soldiers. It's also completely underappreciated in the West how big and important these military campaigns in the East are. I have a ton of Western books on the Second World War, some of them going back to almost right after the war. They are almost to a book, huge and thick and comprehensive. Yet you'd be surprised how few of them have much on the Soviet or Eastern side of the conflict at all in them. Many go from Barbarossa to Stalingrad and right to Berlin, as though nothing else happened. Some even leave out Stalingrad. The crucial battles of 1944 and early 1945 not mentioned in almost any of them, a very small amount. I have one from Life magazine, you know, the photo magazine in 1960. When they get to the stuff on the Eastern Front, they have no photos, so they just use paintings, a whole book of photos, every bit of the Eastern Front stuff in paintings, what little they gave you. That is amazing, inexcusable, and revealing. Operation Bagration, in addition to killing a lot of Axis soldiers, netted a lot of prisoners for the Soviets. The Soviets decided, in a move that reminds you a lot of the ancient Roman practice of the triumph, where they would march the defeated leaders and some of the army through the Roman streets so the citizens could get a look at them, in Moscow, the government of Joseph Stalin marches the Germans captured at Bagration through the Moscow streets. You can see newsreel footage of this now. It's a hell of a sight. You want to talk about most of the enemy looking terribly beaten and stunned to be walking down Moscow's streets and their own streets at home if they live in the big cities have buildings that have been demolished by bombing everywhere and the streets in Moscow are pristine as they look around to this crowd that stares at them in what people who were there say was absolute silence. They were watching these monsters of their nightmares, these people that had inflicted all these hardships on them, and it was almost like they were struck dumb as to what do you say at a moment like this? One old Russian woman was heard to mutter, quote, just like our poor boys, driven into the war, end quote. So there was some sympathy for these soldiers who looked pitiable. But then, Alexander Worth, who wrote about seeing this parade of german prisoners said that amid the silence quote i heard a little girl perched on her mother's shoulder say mommy are those the people who killed daddy and he says the mother hugged the child and wept a reminder of what was going on and how deeply all those people marching past had affected the people watching them march past traumatized people on both sides scenes like the parading of german prisoners through the streets of moscow were having a devastating effect on the morale of germany's higher military leaders and who can blame them after all the summer of 1944 is a disaster for the german army worse in its totality than stalingrad even Between July and September 1944, Wehrmacht losses topped 215,000 men killed. They topped 620,000 men missing or captured in the East. 106 divisions shattered in a few months. Total German losses on the Eastern Front by the summer of 1944 are more than 2 million men dead, wounded, captured, or missing. This leads to yet another attempt on Hitler's life. On July 20th, 1944, the most successful one to date, by the way. It's known as the July 20th plot. This is the one, the famous one, where Count Klaus von Stauffenberg smuggles a bomb in a briefcase into Hitler's conference room. The resulting explosion killed several of Hitler's confidants around him, but a heavy wooden table saved the Fuhrer's life. Many, many Germans would pay the price for that failed assassination attempt. On August 1st, 1944, another tragedy takes place. The Poles in the city of Warsaw, seeing the Red Army simply, you know, across the Vistula River, right on the other side of the city, decide to stage an uprising, a long-planned, long-awaited-for uprising, and throw the German occupiers out of the city. Now, it's a complex affair designed to have one Polish faction gain the lead on a pro-communist Polish faction. The uprising comes a year and four months after the uprising in the Jewish ghetto area of Warsaw. That revolt um, led to the SS killing 20,000 Jewish men, women, and children, and then sending the 50,000 captured survivors to the death camps. In this latest uprising, led by a Pole named Bor Komorowski, 225,000 Polish civilians will be liquidated, along with maybe 30,000 actual partisan forces to bring the total to more than 250,000. This is probably the worst atrocity, the worst single atrocity of the war. The only thing really close to it is the Japanese rape of the Chinese city of Nanking. The Germans actually lost 17,000 of their own men crushing this rebellion. And it was crushed with such violence and A level of atrocity that even shocked the Germans that they felt compelled to execute the leader of the division that carried out, you know, the quelling of the violence. How bad does an atrocity have to be for the Germans to execute someone for being too atrocious? There were stories of babies being spitted on bayonets and the bayonets hung out the window. Women hung upside down, you know, along whole street lengths by balconies. Houses were simply set on fire with flamethrowers, the inhabitants burned in the hope of catching a partisan or two inside. What happened to Warsaw's Poles at this time is part of the doomed Polish national romance that has made them one of the unquenchable peoples of Europe. British historian Max Hastings wrote a wonderful little piece about the Polish cause. He wrote... Polish behavior was characterized from beginning to end by a heroic spirit of self-immolation. Even when the Poles recognized that the Soviets were disinclined to aid them, they rejected Stalin's demands. The Soviet leader indicated to the Polish Prime Minister, leader of the London Poles, who visited Moscow early in August, that before he could expect anything from the Russians, his government must resign, the Soviet seizure of eastern Poland must be recognized, and the London Poles must publicly accept Moscow's preposterous claim that the massacre of Polish officers at Kadian was the work of the Nazis, not the Soviets. When Bor Komorowski in Warsaw heard of all this, he signaled proudly on the 26th of August, Poland has not been fighting the Germans for five years, bearing the greatest losses just to capitulate to Russia. Our fight against the Germans has shown that we love freedom more than life. Here, Hastings continues, indeed, reality matched rhetoric in the most dreadful fashion. There was a tragic romance, Hastings says, about the mood in Warsaw, even as the city was battered into ruin. The Poles, determined to celebrate the resurrection of their national culture amid catastrophe, staged recitals, concerts, plays in the public buildings within their perimeter. A profusion of pamphlets, newspapers, and political treaties were written and published. There was a plan to stage an opera until the leading players were killed in action. An engaged couple, a lieutenant and a girl courier, asked to be married in the city's cathedral. One of the two witnesses could not walk, having been wounded by shrapnel. He was carried into the cathedral sacristy for the wedding on the back of his fellow witness. The 23-year-old bride and groom were buried alive by a Stuka strike a few days later, end quote. Warsaw would fall to the Germans after a 63-day siege, a controversial siege where once again the West, who had gone to war to aid the Poles in 1939, could aid them as little in 1944 as they could in 1939. And once again the Poles suffered terribly for it between 1939 and 1945 20 percent of the polish population would perish a higher proportion than any other country in the second world war and when the soviets finally do take poland the poles once again become double victims as the soviets treat any member of the resistance that rose up against the germans as enemies to communism Stalin considered the Warsaw Uprising to be a, quote, "...criminal attempt," unquote, and the Soviets designated that any that took part in it were the equivalent of enemy agents and were treated accordingly. They weren't the only ones being treated accordingly. By now, the Red Army is beginning to liberate its first actual German territory. In October 1944, they begin to take places around East Prussia on the Baltic coast, what they would do in East Prussia, so shattered German morale that by Christmas 1944, the mood in Berlin would be a mood resigned to doom. Anthony Beaver writes that the black humor at Christmas in Berlin had people saying to each other, quote, be practical, give a coffin. And the Heil Hitler salute had been replaced with a simple greeting in German that meant survive they'd heard about what happened in East Prussia and survival seemed like a long shot. First of all, when the Red Army arrived in East Prussia, they couldn't believe how well the Germans lived. There are many stories of the Soviet troops, the Red Army soldiers walking around looking at the luxury, a luxury that they were completely unaccustomed to, most of them in the Red Army as either peasants or living in a communist economy where you know commercial commodities were something that were rare over and over again you read comments like quote they have so much why would they want to invade us you also have other russian red army troops assuming that all this wealth must have come from the looting of europe and the looting of the soviet union which made them even angrier and even more inclined to take part in the age-old prerogative of war the looting and the pillaging that comes when you occupy an enemy territory And we in the West often think we behave so much better and so much more morally than, say, the Soviets when they were looting in Germany. And in many ways, the troops in the West did. But when it came to looting, we were pretty good. And we were pretty good in ways that hasn't really made the history books very much. For example, when both the British troops and American troops were liberating places like Belgium on the way to the Rhine River, We were so involved in looting in these territories, these allies that we were liberating, that one British general said the name for the crossing of the Rhine should have been changed to Operation Plunder. And this was from troops who had really not suffered, you know, at the homeland level, their populations at the hands of the Germans at all. Imagine how much worse it would be if you actually had real revenge in your heart for what the Nazis had done to your people and your town and your family. The payback in the East matched the way that the rest of the war had been fought on that front. It was merciless and at sometimes positively medieval. Historian Richard Overy writes, The trail of savagery had the unmistakable echoes of an earlier age. In the first villages they occupied in 1944, the soldiers slaughtered the population, raping and torturing the women, young and old. Refugees were shelled and bombed and crushed beneath the tracks of advancing tanks. In Silesia and on the banks of the Oder River, the orgy of violence threatened the discipline of the troops at what was a crucial point in the campaign, and commanders took harsh steps to rein in the atrocities and widespread looting. Historian Max Hastings writes, The first Russian incursions into East Prussia took place on the 22nd of October 1944, when the 11th Guards Army captured Nemersdorf and several other border hamlets. Five days later, German General Friedrich Hossbach's 4th Army retook the villages. Hardly one civilian inhabitant survived. Women had been nailed to barn doors and farm carts, or had been crushed by tanks after they'd been raped. Their children had been killed. Forty French POWs working on local farms had been shot. Likewise, avowed German communists had also been shot. The Red Army's behavior reflected not casual brutality, but systematic sadism rivaling that of the Nazis. Quote, "...in the farmyard stood a cart to which more naked women were nailed through their hands in a cruciform position." reported a Volkssturm militiaman, Karl Portrick, who entered Nemmersdorf with the Wehrmacht. Quote, Near a large inn, the Roter Krug, stood a barn, and to each of its two doors a naked woman was nailed through the hands in a crucified posture. In the dwellings we found a total of 72 women, including children and one man, 74, all dead, all murdered in a bestial fashion, except only for a few who had bullet holes in their heads. Some babies had had their heads bashed in. End quote. Soviet officer Leonid Rabichev wrote about what he witnessed in East Prussia. Quote, "...women, mothers, and their children lie to the right and left along the route, and in front of them stands a raucous armada of men with their trousers down. The women who are bleeding or losing consciousness get shoved to one side, and our men shoot the ones who try to save their children." Quote. The German women were being gang-raped in front of their husbands and in front of their children and men who tried to intervene were often killed. Rape victims were often killed. The future author of the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was serving as an artillery officer in the Red Army at this time, wrote, quote, "...all of us knew very well that if the girls were German, they could be raped and then shot. This was almost a combat distinction. Had they been Polish girls or our own displaced Russian girls, they could have been chased naked round the garden and slapped on the behind." End quote. And it should be noted... It's hard to figure out What percentage of the Red Army was behaving this way? It was such a diverse army made up of so many different ethnic groups and personality types. You had almost puritanical communist ideologues that not only frowned upon this stuff but wrote horrible tales in shock about it. You had recently released POWs who were committing acts of revenge. You had people that were press-ganged from the occupied territories, handed a rifle and pushed forward to the lines. You had some of the worst of the worst of the... You know, Soviet prisoners let out of prison. By 1945, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel in the question of manpower, and the people that are in East Prussia committing these kinds of horrible acts are not necessarily the best representatives of Soviet society. In addition to this, many, many of them are drunk. Alcohol is playing a major role in all of this atrocious behavior. And the Germans know that alcohol is playing a major role. In fact, it is they who put it in front of the Soviet troops often, knowing that most soldiers will drink if alcohol is available. The Germans leave stores of alcohol for the Soviet troops to find, hoping that they'll get drunk and then they can be taken advantage of militarily. Instead, the alcohol and the inebriation helps the Red Army to take advantage of the civilians in that area in atrocious ways. It backfired on the Germans massively. But the Red Army troops didn't need alcohol to be angry at the Germans and to take revenge on them. The communist state had actively encouraged a feeling of revenge. They had built up this idea of the fascist beasts, which is what they called the Nazis. Stalin, for example, encouraged his troops to keep what were called ledgers of revenge, which recorded... German atrocities that the troops had seen on the way to Germany and then encouraged them to match the atrocities they saw with personal contributions of their own towards leveling those accounts and settling those scores. Political officers held revenge meetings to encourage this same spirit. They were also holding meetings with titles like How Shall I Avenge Myself Against the German Occupiers? They're trying to instill a feeling of hate. The signs on the German roadsides Erected by the Soviet Propaganda Department said things like, "'Tremble with fear, fascist Germany! The day of reckoning has come!' A French informant said that Soviet authorities had actually exhumed the bodies of 65,000 Jews killed near Odessa and had them placed along the roadside that was used by most Red Army troops on the way to Germany, and every 200 yards a sign was erected declaring, "'Look how the Germans treat Soviet civilians!' A female Red Army nurse said, quote, I had so much hatred stored up, I thought, what are we going to do to these people when we get to Germany? I wanted to see the mothers who had given birth to these monsters. I thought that they would never be able to look us in the eye, end quote. A Russian historian wrote that, quote, hatred for the enemy had become the most important motivation for our men, end quote. By the time the Soviet leadership realized that they needed to tone down the rhetoric because the behavior was so out of hand, it was irreversible. Of the terrible things done to the German civilians in the East, one surviving German woman said, quote, it was our Holocaust, but nobody cares, end quote. And the reason no one cared is because so many others had already experienced their Holocaust, and most of them at the hands of the Germans. A British POW in German hands said after seeing how the Soviet POWs were treated by the German prison guards, quote, I'll forgive the Russians absolutely anything they do to this country when they arrive. Absolutely anything. End quote. The treatment meted out to German civilians in East Prussia caused a panic among the Germans. They began picking up their things and fleeing the area, heading to Germany proper. It became what... Anthony Beaver called the largest panic retreat in human history, more than eight and a half million German civilians on the roads leading to Germany, clogging the roads with columns so thick and so long they were easily seen by high-altitude bombers flying overhead. These refugee columns were made up almost entirely of women and children, since the men were all fighting or conscripted. It was winter, it was cold, it was a tragedy in the making, and more than a million of these people will disappear and are presumed dead from this flight from East Prussia. There were many reports that the Soviets were attacking fleeing refugees, but the Germans had done the same thing earlier in the war and the Germans were now getting to experience the same thing that the Poles had experienced in 1939, that the French had experienced in 1940, and that the Soviets had experienced since 1941. As the Germans fleeing from East Prussia arrive in the overloaded trains in Germany and in places like Pomerania, their condition fills the local people with horror. One woman said, quote, Huddled shapes, rigid with cold, barely able to stand up anymore and climb out. Thin clothing, mostly in tatters. A few blankets over bowed shoulders. Gray, hollow faces. Anthony Beaver says the stiff little bundles were removed from the cars and laid on the platform. These were the children who had frozen to death. That same woman said, quote, Out of the silence came the cries of a mother who did not want to surrender what she had lost. Horror and panic overcame me. Never had I seen such misery. And behind this sight, a terrifying and powerful vision loomed up. We were these people. This was what was in store for us. End quote. When the Soviets approached Breslau in Silesia, refugees were killed in a stampede to reach the evacuation trains. The wounded and the sick had no chance at all of escaping, so the local authorities gave them each a grenade to use on themselves and to take any Red Army troops they could with them. Berlin was receiving 50,000 refugees every day. Most gave the impression of exhausted aimlessness, said one observer. On the 14th of January, 1945, the Volkssturm is mobilized. These are the old men and the young kids who are going to be the last line of defense against the Red Army. The old men tended to run away, unless they were World War I veterans, and even then they ran away sometimes. The kids, though, could be fanatical and could give the Soviets trouble. There was one 12-year-old boy who was decorated after he destroyed 12 Russian tanks with panzerfosts, which are like bazookas. A Soviet officer said it was the young ones who went on and on, meaning on and on fighting. One of the nicknames that the regular Wehrmacht army troops had for the Volkssturm was they called them the casseroles, because they said they were made up of a mixture of old meat and green vegetables. Seeing children as young as 13 in military uniform called up to fight for the defense of Berlin was part of the mind-boggling Story of what the Germans themselves referred to as the Götterdammerung, which is the composer Wagner's you know, Twilight of the Gods. Said one German soldier talking about these young Volksturm Hitler youth troops, quote, They had been hastily dressed in worn uniforms cut for men and were carrying guns which were as big as they were. They looked both comical and horrifying, and their eyes were filled with unease like the eyes of children at the reopening of school. Some of them were laughing and roughhousing, forgetting the military discipline which was inassimilable at their age. We noticed some heart-ringing details about these children, who were beginning the first act of their tragedy. Several of them were carrying school satchels their mothers had packed for them with extra food and clothing instead of school books. A few of the boys were trading the saccharine candies which the ration allotted to children under 13. What could be done with these troops? What were they expected to perform? Was Germany heroic or insane? Who would ever be able to judge this absolute sacrifice? When General Wiedling, in command of the defense of Berlin, is told by the head of the Hitler Youth that boys were ready to fight and, in fact, were already deployed for action, he was enraged to the point where he almost couldn't speak. Finally, witnesses say, using very coarse language, he denounced the whole idea of using the Hitler youth in combat, quote, you cannot sacrifice these children in a cause that is already lost. I will not use them, and I demand that the order sending these children into battle be rescinded, End quote. Berliners who are walking around the capital city seem to have an inability to comprehend that the familiar surroundings that they're looking at are about to be swept away forever max hastings has an interesting line about this inability to look at your surroundings and see them as they're going to look in a week or two or in a month he writes it is in the nature of war that many people find it impossible to acknowledge that the horrors that they witness represent reality or that the familiar environment is doomed How can the heart accept the signals of the brain, however powerful or rational, that a known universe in which the blotter stands where it has always stood, on the office desk, the sofa in the lounge of the house, the shop on the corner of the street, is about to disappear forever? If this phenomenon is true for ordinary mortals, then it becomes unsurprising that the Nazi leadership, with the notable exception of Albert Speer, retreated into fantasy, even as the Allied armies closed in for the kill. End quote. Imagine yourself if you knew in your head that an invading army outside your city would soon destroy your house and your neighborhood and your neighbors would be dead on the streets in a short period of time could your mind project that reality forward it was almost impossible for the Berliners who knew what was coming to imagine how much their world was about to change what they couldn't imagine was being experienced by the people on the Baltic coast. There are stories, horrific stories, about the people trying to flee the Baltic areas. Heroic stories of ships coming into the Baltic ports, taking out refugees and trying to get them away from the fighting zone. Events and tragedies and heroics that could make a whole show in and of itself. The fantasies, though of the Third Reich continue. On the 30th of January, 1945, on the 12th anniversary of his coming to power, Hitler issues a call for fanatical resistance by the soldiers and civilians, and he predicts that, quote, in this struggle for survival, it will not be inner Asia that will conquer, but the people that have defended Europe for centuries against the onslaught from the east, the German nation, end quote. But all the carnage by this point seemed pointless to many of those fighting the war. German soldier Geiser said, quote, There was nothing we could do about it. The screams of fear, the groans of the dying, the torrents of blood soaking into the ground like a vile sacrilege. Nothing. Millions of men could suffer and weep and scream, and the war would go on, implacable and indifferent. We could only wait and hope. But hope for what? To escape dying face down in the mud? And the war? All it needed was an order from the authorities, and it would end. An order which the men would respect like a sacrament. End quote. Well, had the leadership running Nazi Germany been the same group of people that had run the First World War, the war would be over. All these atrocities, these rapes, the looting, the terrible treatment meted out to the German civilians would be postponed and prevented. But the Nazis were preparing themselves for a Götterdammerung, a twilight of the gods, where they were going to go down in flames and bring the German nation down with them. As Hitler said way back in 1934, quote, even if we should not conquer, we should drag half the world into destruction with us and leave no one to triumph over Germany. We shall never capitulate. No, never. We may be destroyed, but if we are, we shall drag a world with us, a world in flames, End quote. He should have said a German world in flames because those are the people he was going to drag down with him. By the 31st of January, the Russians are less than 40 miles from Berlin. Just after the Red Army reaches the Oder River, outside of the Berlin area, Hitler copies Stalin's famous order, the not-one-step-back order. Any troops who retreated were to be shot by their own people. He even included the communist idea of blockade detachments, where you put troops behind your troops with orders to shoot your own people if they moved in a reverse direction. On February 13th, Budapest is captured by the Russians. On April 13th, the Russians capture Vienna. In Berlin, the nervousness is affecting everyone and is palpable. Anthony Beaver relates a story of an incident on a train in Berlin right before the Soviet attack was due. He says, quote, A 16-year-old Berliner called Dieter Bokrovsky described what he witnessed in a crowded S-Bahn train from the Anhalter Bahnhof. There was terror in the faces of the people. They were full of anger and despair. I had never heard such cursing before. Suddenly someone shouted above the noise, Silence! We saw a small dirty soldier with two iron crosses and the German cross in gold. On his sleeve he had a badge with four metal tanks, which meant he'd destroyed four tanks at close quarters. I've got something to tell you, he shouted, and the carriage fell silent. Even if you don't want to listen to me, stop whining. We have to win this war. We must not lose our courage. If others win the war, and if they do to us only a fraction of what we've done in the occupied territories, there won't be a single German left in a few weeks. It became so quiet in that carriage that one could have heard a pin drop. End quote. And the mood in Berlin in 1945 is almost like a Twilight Zone episode. It's almost a real-world experiment into the idea, what would you do if you knew the world was about to come to an end? Anthony Beaver says that people spent their money as if there were no tomorrow. There were stories of young girls coupling with strangers in the dark corners of bomb shelters. Beaver says this was part of a desire to, quote, dispense with innocence, end quote. What would you do if you knew that the apocalypse was upon you and you only had a month or so to go? Well, outside of Berlin, the Red Army was putting together and mobilizing 2.5 million men. 6,300 tanks, 42,000 guns and mortars, 7,500 combat aircraft, a force that Anthony Beavers calls the greatest concentration of firepower ever amassed. The Germans were trying to defend the area with approximately a million men, but a quarter of those are old men and kids. They have about 1,500 tanks, little over 9,000 guns, pretty much no aircraft. The city of Berlin was 320 square miles in size had a pre-war population of 4 million civilians. About 2 million were still there to face the offensive in 1945. The Soviet efforts to take Berlin are immensely complex. It's not just a brute force affair. The Soviet commanders and the planners, they show a high degree of sophistication in the way they want to go about this. The offensive that will eventually take Berlin starts by attacking the areas about 40 miles away from the city itself, and it begins in darkness early on April 16, 1945. Some 42,000 artillery pieces launch a massive bombardment that will go on for days. The Red Army has stockpiled more than 7 million shells for just this occasion. Aircraft launch more than 6,500 bombing and raiding sorties. The shelling of the 42,000 guns creates a weird effect in the outskirts of Berlin, some 35 miles from the actual battleground. Pictures begin falling off the walls in people's homes, and the books tumble off the shelves. Their telephones start ringing for no reason. There's a story of a cross hurtling to earth from a church steeple because of the vibrations. Windows and mirrors are shattering, lights are flickering, and everywhere, we're told, dogs are howling. There's a rumble like thunder in the distance. And this must have seemed, I mean, try to imagine yourself in this position. It's like a warning cry of the gods, isn't it? Imagine how ominous this must have seemed to the citizens in these areas. It all but screams, you know, your doom approaches. It's like a telegram from hell. People could feel the very earth vibrating. Cornelius Ryan wrote about this moment right before the jumping off of the offensive in the Soviet ranks. He says, quote, "...in the ranks were troops who had stood at Leningrad, Smolensk, Stalingrad, and before Moscow, men who had fought their way across half a continent to reach the Oder River." There were soldiers who had seen their towns and villages obliterated by German guns, their crops burned, their families slain by German soldiers. For all these, the assault had special meaning. They had lived for this moment of revenge. The Germans had left them nothing at home to return to, and they had nowhere to go but forward. Now they attacked savagely. Equally avid were the thousands of recently released prisoners of war, reinforcements that had been so urgently needed by the Red Army that the newly freed prisoners, tattered, emaciated, many still showing the effects of brutal treatment, had been given arms. Now they, too, rushed forward, seeking a terrible vengeance." End quote the Soviets had been very worried that the Germans might use chemical weapons to blunt this last attack. The Germans had nerve agents, which were much more effective than anything that was used in the First World War. And there was talk of miracle weapons all over Germany. And this had the Soviet high leadership worried about the idea that the chemical weapons might be used, and reports had reached Sweden that the chemical weapons had actually been distributed to the special troops in long boxes, with writing on the side saying, quote, can only be used on the personal order of the Fuhrer, end quote. There were reports from some German generals that Hitler's close advisors were urging him to use what were called the weapons of despair. And for one reason or another, they weren't used. Now, as the Goddard is beginning to come down on the Nazis' head. The propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, has an interesting line that I've never heard before. He said on April 17th in a speech to his own propaganda ministry, quote, Everyone now has a chance to choose the part which he will play in the film A Hundred Years Hence. I can assure you that it will be a fine and elevating picture. Hold out now so that A Hundred Years Hence the audience does not hoot and whistle when you appear on the screen. End quote that's a really interesting way to view the events near the end of your life as all hell's breaking out. Another Goebbels line, which had sort of a hint of a theatrical reference, before he took his own life and his wives and his children, he said, quote, The earth will shake as we leave the scene. End quote. The earth was definitely shaking. Now, if the Soviets were not showing a ton of humanitarian concern for their enemy, they weren't showing much for their own troops either. Marshal Zhukov later explained to American General Eisenhower how his military forces treated the impediments that the Germans were laying out in front of him, places like minefields. He said to Eisenhower, quote, When we come to a minefield, our infantry attacks exactly as if it were not there. The losses we get from personnel mines we consider equal to those we would have gotten from machine guns or artillery if the Germans had chosen to defend that particular area with strong bodies of troops instead of with minefields, end quote. So human life had a value of about zero at this point in the conflict. In early April, as Berlin drowns in the foreboding of the upcoming Soviet offensive, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, issues an order that all males 14 years or older, are to be shot in any house where any sort of white flag appears. Also, any penalties imposed on those males are to be imposed on the families of offenders, too. So if someone in your family deserted, the whole family gets treated as if they deserted, and they'll all be shot. The end of the fascist regime saw the worst of the atrocities against their own people. Now, as Hitler and his regime seemed to become more and more inhuman... According to Richard Overy, Stalin actually shows a little degree of humanness at this point in the war. Looking somber and uncharacteristically thoughtful, he supposedly told Marshal Zhukov, what a terrible war. How many lives of our people it has carried away. There are probably few families of us left who haven't lost someone near to them. End quote. As a way of sort of explaining this uncharacteristic behavior, Zhukov says that at this time Stalin seemed to him close to exhaustion, utterly overworked, he said, of the dictator. On April 20th, 1945, it's Hitler's birthday. The Soviet offensive is expected, at any time, to reach Berlin. Extra rations are ordered for the city's population. Through nearly five hours of air raids that happened that day, because Hitler's birthday always prompted an extra big air attack from the Allies, Berlin's housewives braved the bombs to pick up the extra food, these rations were supposed to last for eight days. Annalisa Bayer told her husband, quote, with these rations we shall now ascend into heaven, end quote. And a lot of people in Berlin felt the same way. The extra rations started to be known as Ascension Day rations, and the mood in Berlin was a doomed one. A professor at a Berlin chemical plant remembers how when the plant was shut down before the arrival of the Soviets, quote, we all bid farewell to one another until life after death, end quote. Field Marshal Paulus, he the commander of Stalingrad, serving his time in a Soviet prison cell in 1945, said, It is two years since the Stalingrad catastrophe, and now the whole of Germany is becoming a gigantic Stalingrad. By late April, citizens in Berlin are referring to their city as the Reich's funeral pyre. On April 21st, the shells start landing on Berlin itself. Cornelius Ryan describes it, quote, The sound was unlike anything Berliners had ever heard before, unlike the whistle of falling bombs or the crack and thud of anti-aircraft fire. Puzzled, the shoppers who queued up outside the Karstadt's department store on Hermannplatz listened. It was a low keening coming from somewhere off in the distance, but now it rose rapidly to a terrible piercing scream. For an instant, the shoppers seemed mesmerized. Then suddenly, the lines of people broke and scattered, but it was too late. Artillery shells, the first to reach the city, burst over the square. Bits of bodies splashed against the boarded-up storefront. Men and women lay in the streets screaming and writhing in agony. It was exactly 11.30 a.m., Saturday, April 21st. Berlin had become the front line. Shells now began to strike everywhere. Tons of flame leaped from rooftops all over the center of the city. Bomb-weakened buildings collapsed. Automobiles were upended and set afire. The Brandenburg Gate was hit, and one cornice crashed into the street. Shells plowed unter der Linden, from one end to the other. The royal palace, already wrecked, burst into flames again. So did the Reichstag. The girders that had once supported the building's cupola collapsed and hunks of metal showered down. People ran wildly along the Kurfürstendamm, dropping briefcases and packages, bobbing frantically from doorway to doorway. At the tier garden end of the street, a stable of riding horses received a direct hit. The screams of the animals mingled with the cries and shouts of men and women, and an instant later the horses stampeded out of the inferno and dashed down the Kurfürstendamm, their manes and tails blazing. The terrible reality of the total war that the Germans had introduced so much of the rest of the world to was now coming home to roost in their very capital. The hungry civilians in Berlin still had to line up at shops if they wanted to get their food, even as the fighting raged and the shells fell all around them. Many were killed. Civilian casualties were extremely heavy in the city. Anthony Beaver says, quote, Like Napoleonic infantry, the women standing in line for food simply closed ranks after a shell burst decimated a queue. Nobody dared lose their place. Some claimed that women just wiped the blood from their ration cards and stuck it out. There they stand like walls, noted a woman diarists. Those who not so long ago dashed into bunkers the moment three fighter planes were announced over central Germany. Women queued for a handout of dry sausage, while men emerged only to line up for an issue of schnapps. It seemed to be symbolic. Women were concerned with the immediacy of survival, while the men needed to escape from the consequences of their war, end quote. On April 22, 1945, Hitler decides to stay in Berlin till the end. The end is not that far away. Three days later, Russian and U.S. troops meet on the Elbe River and close ranks around the German capital. Now, the actual military battle for Berlin is a little bit anticlimactic in a military history sense. After all, on the Eastern Front, we've all become accustomed to these colossal battles involving tons of armor as these two major world powers go toe-to-toe. The problem is, by the time the Battle of Berlin happens, the German army simply doesn't have the ability to do that anymore. They had taken a chance and used a ton of their army to keep the Soviets from getting to this point lots of very bloody encounters in 1944 in the Baltics and over in what's now Poland, and fighting to slow the Red Army down leaves the German army with little left to fight with by the time it comes to the capital's battle. And the reserve that actually had been there had been squandered rashly by Adolf Hitler in the West in a battle we Americans know as the Battle of the Bulge. I think the official name is the Second Battle of the Ardennes. But almost a million German soldiers were involved in that battle only to get their military units chewed up by Allied air power. Now Berlin was to be defended by some military units, which are shadows of real military units, and a lot of civilians. And no one, except for Hitler in his less lucid moments, had any illusions about the idea of winning. There was no military outcome defined as winning. So what were these people fighting for? Well, the German generals, some of them, showed a real humanitarian and pro-Germany streak in them at the last minute. Hitler wanted the whole country to go down in flames. He wanted the fighting to occur in Berlin, even though all the civilians were trapped there. A lot of these generals risked being shot to disobey those orders. They concentrated what little military units Germany had left on the outskirts of Berlin, on these heights overlooking the River Oder, for example. They set up a defensive line that was able to hold back the Soviet colossus for a few days. Units like the Ninth Army made it sound to Hitler in his bunker like he actually had real military units to work with. But what was constituting the Ninth Army at this point in the war never would have been considered a viable army a couple of years before. These forces were swept aside, the Soviets were able to break into Berlin, and the street fighting starts. Now, typical of the Eastern War fighting you encounter in these small unit battles and these desperate encounters every bit of heroism and personal bravery and sacrifice and horrificness and atrocity that you encounter in the rest of the eastern war on both sides there are stories of ss units fighting fanatically to the last man Then there are other stories of SS units running around the city, shooting everybody that they think is shirking their duty. Stories of Soviets, you know, dying for each other to push forward toward Berlin and get the fascist enemy finally defeated. I mean, it's there's tons of stories, but they're all almost individual encounters. The days of large scale military warfare on the Eastern Front are over. So what are they fighting for? A lot of these generals are simply fighting to keep corridors of escape open so that civilians can escape from the east to the west to try to avoid the fate that now all the Germans are afraid of, the stuff that was going on in places like East Prussia. So all this on the part of some of these generals was an attempt to minimize civilian casualties. And a lot of the civilians did benefit from these last-ditch heroics to keep the corridors to the west open. People got away, but a lot of them didn't. While this is all going on, German civilians are huddled in shelters in the capital city. Some of these shelters full to the brim with ten to 12,000 people in them. Too cramped to move at all, even to go to the bathroom. They go right where they stand. The wounded are in these shelters screaming. Children are dying. The people are dazed and unsure of what time of day it even is. Shells are hitting the buildings constantly. In one of the largest shelters, the anti-aircraft facility known as the Zoo Bunker, there are 30,000 civilians crammed into the space. People are going insane from the shelling. Others are committing suicide in the room, but they're packed so tightly in the space that they stand upright for hours after dying, pressed into a standing position by all the people around them. On April 30th, 1945, with the Red Army only a few hundred yards away, Hitler commits suicide with his new wife, Eva Braun. Even after Hitler's suicide, the Germans in Berlin continue fighting. The Soviets are forced to clear more than 300 city blocks in the German capital, house by house by house. It's Stalingrad fighting all over again. While the Soviets capture more and more of the German capital, more and more of the residents of Berlin begin to pay the horrible price for what the German armies had done in the Soviet East. Said Danish journalist and fan of the Soviet Union, Paul von Stamen, quote, it was bitter to learn that Goebbels' propaganda had been factual and accurate. It was not that a sex-starved Russian soldier forced himself upon a girl who took his fancy. It was a destructive, hateful, and wholesale act of vengeance. Age or looks were irrelevant. The grandmother was no safer than the granddaughter. The ugly and filthy no more than the fresh and attractive. End quote. And it wasn't just single rapes. It was often gang rapes. Many women and young girls died as a result. And many more were never able to have children again after this terrible ordeal. And there was often a difference between the frontline soldiers and those who were following behind them in the rear. There was an incident at an orphanage and maternity clinic called the House Dahlem. When Soviet troops first arrived, their officers were impeccably behaved. But they warned the mother superior quote, These are good, disciplined, and decent soldiers. But I must tell you, the men who are following us, the ones coming up behind, are pigs. End quote. The ones coming up behind those troops repeatedly raped the pregnant, those who had recently given birth, girls as young as 10 and 12 years old, and killed several. They raped the nuns. The screams echoed throughout the hospital. When Berlin resident Dora Jansen complained to a Russian officer about the women being raped, he looked at her coolly and said, quote, the Germans were worse than this in Russia. This is simply revenge, end quote. And of course, sadly, he was right. Some in the former Soviet Union deny that this stuff took place. There's a movement there that says that this is all exaggerated versions of German propaganda. Red Army officer and witness to all of this, Boris Gorbachevsky wrote, quote, "...the elements of hatred and revenge had, by the end of January 1945, become a raging, inundated river." If we are to be honest, all sorts of things took place: brutality, sadism, cynical, crude acts, unbridled lust, and at times even murders. In this raging storm of retribution, the primary instigators of the violence became the commanders and political workers, the commissary staff, and the Smersh agents, as well as the military commandants. An insignificant portion of the officers sought not to have anything to do with the general madness of violence against people. For example. In Poznan, or Hylengabil, my comrades saved women from rapes. Individual commanders and political workers who openly protested against the outrages against the civilian population suffered for it. Among those who did was the later well-known dissident Lev Kopolev. Unfortunately, the Russian press, he writes, has been concealing the truth about the Red Army's conduct in Germany now for more than 60 years. Here's what the 12-volume official history has to say on the subject. Quote, Not all Soviet soldiers correctly understood how they should behave in Germany. In the first days of combat in East Prussia, there were a few incidents of improper conduct. End quote. He continues. Here is another striking example. In his memoirs, K.K. Rokossovsky wrote, It must be said that our people demonstrated real humanity and nobility on German soil. Gorbachevsky says, other former Soviet military commanders have written similar things in the same spirit in their memoirs. In a 2005 video conference of Russian and German historians on topical questions of the Second World War, a Russian historian from the State Humanitarian University, Elena Sinievskaya, who participated in this video conference, declared that the Red Army had never made a formal study of the outrages inflicted on the civilian population of Germany. She acknowledged only isolated cases of inhumane treatment on the part of Soviet servicemen towards the local population and maintained that they had been fully prosecuted all the way up the military tribunals. I won't argue with Elena Sinovskaya, or make accusations against her. It's a pointless venture, he says. I'll assume she doesn't know the real facts. End quote. In fact, the Lev Kopolev that Gorbachevsky mentions was actually arrested by Soviet authorities on charges of what was called bourgeois humanitarianism for protesting the rapes and similar acts. This is one reason so many Russians today don't know about these events. Discussing or publicizing these occurrences were not just discouraged, they were punishable offenses. Now, it should be noted that the official Soviet military penalty for both raping and looting was death. But it wasn't often carried out in 1945. However, there are some stories where it was. There's one story where an officer shot a lieutenant right on the spot for reportedly lining his troops up to gang rape a woman but the officers had a very hard time controlling troops who had often been drinking and who were armed with heavy weapons and submachine guns. Stalin himself showed little concern over the raping and looting, even when it happened to his allies. When a Yugoslavian partisan leader complained to him personally that Soviet soldiers were raping Yugoslavian women, Stalin said to him, "'You have, of course, read, Dostoevsky. Do you see what a complicated thing is a man's soul, man's psyche?' Well then, imagine a man who's fought from Stalingrad to Belgrade, over thousands of kilometers of his own devastated land, across the dead bodies of his comrades and dearest ones. How can such a man react normally? And what is so awful of his having fun with a woman after such horrors? You've imagined the Red Army to be ideal, and it is not ideal, nor can it be. The important thing is that it fights Germans. The rest doesn't matter. End quote. There was a famous boast by a Soviet veteran that two million of our children were born in Germany. Not likely, though. The number of abortions after the war skyrocketed. Now, it may seem that I'm lingering salaciously on these rapes, but I want to point out that if you talk to Germans, and they will speak to you because they won't always do that, the most traumatic lingering effect of the whole war are the rapes in Germany that were part of what the Red Army did to the German civilians. This traumatized the German population. To them, you can't spend enough time speaking about this aspect of the Red Army's conquest of the eastern part of the country. It's a trauma that still haunts Germany today. Suicides became very common after these rapes. Rape victims took their own lives, often took their loved ones such as their husbands or children with them. The leading Nazis were also killing themselves at a furious pace. One example is the head of the German Red Cross, Ernst Grauwitz. He was suspected of ordering heinous crimes to be committed. So he and his family sat down to dinner, and with everyone seated, he reached down and pulled the pins on two hand grenades and blew the whole family up. Welcome to the reality of the Gotterdammerung at the end of the Third Reich. One of the things that I often think about is post-war Germany and the people that were walking around in that society. Isn't that a whole society of people who are post-traumatic stress disorder victims? I mean, we'll talk about someone, for example, here in the United States, who comes home from the war in Vietnam and who needs to have years of counseling and has perhaps substance abuse problems or problems with their marriage, or God forbid some of them even violent because they can't get the experiences or what that war did to them out of their psyche. Now imagine a whole society of those people. I mean, just think of the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of rape victims alone. Or children of the rape victims who watch their mothers be raped. Or the brothers who watch their sisters be raped. Or the parents who watch their daughters be raped. Don't you think that that leaves a psychic scar? Combine that with the returning soldiers who lived through a Stalingrad or a Kursk or those desperate, terrible battles on the Baltic coast in 1944-1945. All these people walking around in a post-war society together under occupation. It's amazing that the society didn't just go insane, that that generation could push forward and continue and build a post-war society into something admirable. Because I can't think of a more traumatized group of people than that. Unless, of course, it's the people on the other side that they traumatized. Maybe it's fair to say that the nations who fought this war in the East, in the Second World War, were all traumatized. Poland, Ukraine, Belarusia. A continent of traumatized people. And Churchill's comments that he made at Yalta seem particularly apropos. He said, quote, "...I do not suppose that any moment of history has the agony of the world been so great or widespread. Tonight, the sun goes down on more suffering than ever before in the world." End quote. I also want to point out that these atrocities that the Red Army was committing on the German population are human things. There were people that tended to make them Russian things or Soviet things. These are part of age-old human practices. Look at the Romans, who were excited about the prospects, for example, of sacking the city of Cremona so that they could rape the inhabitants. The inhabitants of the city of Cremona were Roman, too. It was part of a Roman civil war. These Romans were excited about the prospect of raping their own countrymen. The recent situation in Bosnia in the early 1990s was just a- recent example of rape being used as a weapon, something that's gone on throughout human history. Even the American conduct in Vietnam is something you can look at, pointing out the humanness of rape in combat. U.S. General Eugene Lynch, who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, spoke of atrocities that American soldiers were involved in in the Vietnam War. He said, quote, in any war, when you lose so much, soldiers will want revenge. Anytime you have a losing situation, you've got a potential melee. This is why it is up to the commander to set the tone and to halt it. End quote. But what happens if the officers don't do that? Like it or not, this is who we are. This is who we are when the thin veneer of civilization is stripped away from us by the violence and the all-out killing of a war like this. You take away that thin veneer and we revert to something from another age. We turn into those Romans outside of Cremona or any of the other situations throughout history where people have acted in a bestial manner, where we can look in our living rooms today as we read the stories and say, how can people act that way? And the answer is that under the right conditions, we can act just like those people and events prove this over and over again. We are not as civilized as we care to believe and something tells me that some Russian soldier in Berlin some Roman soldier in Cremona some Bosnian soldier in the former Yugoslavia in the early 1990s were they here right now would point this fact out to us and if you find yourself feeling a little strange over this whole thing feeling bad for the bad guys in a way in truth the people On all sides of this war were the victims, the victims of terrible governments. The war itself, launched by the Nazi regime, opened up the Pandora's box, unleashing a violence that corrupted everyone. As Boris Gorbachevsky wrote, war is first and foremost a tragedy... War is not only heroic feats and battles, as I had previously imagined. War is also the daily grind of a man trapped in unbearable conditions. It is blood, filth, and sweat. It is life in extreme circumstances. War erases the boundaries between good and evil. It makes the unique, sacred gift, human life, worthless. End quote. It should also be pointed out, for the sake of balance, that there are quite a few stories of Soviet troops acting surprisingly benevolent to the Germans they found, providing them with bread, doting on the German kids having a weakness for German children, and patting them on the heads and giving them food. Often the frontline soldiers behaved impeccably. When the fighting ended, the Soviets solved one of the most pressing problems the German civilians faced. They began feeding them. And this contrasted sharply with what Goebbels' propaganda said the Soviets would do to the Germans once they had them in their power. When the fighting stops in Berlin and the garrison there surrenders on the 2nd of May, 1945, the Soviet General Chuikov walks around the city and he's stunned by the silence following the unbelievable noise that had been there the whole time. And he says that a thought struck him at that moment, quote, the flame of the world was quenched here whence it arose. End quote. We have no clear understanding of how many Germans were killed in the fighting. There was no one on the German side counting bodies. The people you would expect to keep such statistics were themselves dodging shells and bullets and trying to survive as the roof fell in on the Third Reich. The numbers have always been all over the map. As bad as those numbers are, though, they're a drop in the bucket when you throw them into the overall casualty figures for this war in the East. Without the war in the East, the Second World War loses a ton of its bite. With the war in the East, it becomes easily the worst war ever fought on this planet. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, researchers and historians have had to increase their estimate of the losses in the Soviet Union, losses that were already unbelievably high the current estimates and that's what they are estimates because no one knows for sure are that 10 million red army soldiers died in the fighting between 1941 and 1945 add to that a further 18 million people on the soviet side wounded people who lost arms and legs or who were paralyzed for life that's 28 million military casualties historian richard Overy put that into perspective when he said that of the 34 and a half million men and women mobilized by the red army an astounding 84 percent of those people were killed wounded or captured i'm not sure there's a percentage like that anywhere in military history in the modern world now the civilian casualties dwarf even that the estimates, and that's all they are, our estimates, because no one will ever know, is that between 17 million and 25 million Soviet civilians died as a result of the fighting and the occupation. That means that the Soviet Union is darn near 40 million estimated casualties dead from the fighting in the Eastern Front. That's more people than the population of many modern middle-sized countries. You cannot get your mind around a number that large. Sometimes it helps to look at the destruction instead. The Soviet Union had 70,000 villages obliterated due to the war, literally steamrolled or destroyed. 70,000 villages. More than 1,700 middle-sized towns were wiped off the map. More than 32,000 factories destroyed. More than 25 million civilians made homeless. Now, the Germans suffered quite a few less casualties than the Soviets, but their numbers are still staggering compared to, say, the Western Allies. They suffered 5.5 million military deaths in the war, more than 4 million of those coming in the East, and about 2.5 million civilians dead. That's an estimate. No one's quite sure about that either. And, of course... The Germans suffered occupation for decades afterwards. Some historians say that the Second World War's actual last act was when the Berlin Wall came down about 20 years ago. And there's a tendency to think that once the war was over, the war was over. The people in the United States went home and celebrated. The people in Great Britain went home and celebrated. The people in the Soviet Union had to live with the war around them for decades There are stories about those 25 million homeless Soviet civilians having to go out in the middle of winter and strip the German corpses that lay all around their towns and villages of their uniforms to try to put them on so that they would live through the winter without freezing. There are stories of the cleanup that had to be handled by the local authorities, where they would take all these German corpses frozen in the middle of winter, put them in shallow graves, only to find that when the spring thaws came, the ravines and ditches and streams ran red as the blood melted out of these grave areas. There are a few surviving photographs of what some of these fields looked like before the Germans were buried, and you see, stretching from the feet of the cameraman all the way to the horizon, frozen German corpses. The cleanup would take forever, and the war would be right in the faces of these Soviet civilians for decades. That's still there now. Our descendants will be finding for centuries the mass graves and the battlefield sites and the burial plots. There's an old historical line, and it's certainly a cliché, but Santa Ana is reported to have said it. Those who do not remember the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. I've always wondered if those bone fields can act as a stark reminder as to the lessons of history, especially when we realize that with today's modern weaponry, if ever two major world powers like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union faced off again, they would do so with weapons that could deliver what it took four and a half years for those two powers to deliver in about four and a half minutes. With any luck, the conflict from the East in the Second World War will be the largest war human beings ever fight.